Thanks for listening to this Waterstone message. Here at Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We hope this message challenges and encourages you, and we would love to see you at one of our services on Saturday evenings at 5.30 or Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30. A reading from the book of Genesis. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge your presence in our midst this morning. Um, we, we know that as we open your word and explore it, you're at work. Pray that you would give us understanding, that you would take the truth there and help us apply it deeply into our lives. Our goal, Lord, is to better understand you, your world, and ourselves, and because of that, live in ways that are pleasing to you as our king. Would you make that happen this morning? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you had to summarize your life story in six words, what would those six words be? Go ahead and share it with your neighbor. No, I'm joking. You don't have to. Can't do it that quickly. There was actually an online magazine that asked that question and asked people to send them in. And to their surprise, so many people responded it almost crashed the site. They eventually turned it into a book. I wanted to share with you just a, a, a few of the, the six-word stories. Some of them are ironic. Uh, some of them are humorous. Some of them are heartbreaking. Here's a few. One tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. Cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. That was written by a nine-year-old. The psychic said, I'd be richer. <laughs> this one only had five words. One long train to darkness. And maybe this one we relate to. Not a good Christian, but trying. Uh, the six-word limitation is challenging, but what it does is it forces us to focus on what's really important and what's significant. This morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter three, the story there, and if I had to put that story in six words, it would be these six words. Everything is broken, but there's hope. Everything is broken, but there's hope. We are kind of in a new series of preaching through the whole Bible in a year telling God's story. The last two weeks, Larry has dealt with the beginning chapters, chapter one and two, and talked about creation and the image of God. Today we're going to talk about the fall, Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three really is a, a theology of sin. And you're thinking, oh great, I'm glad I showed up today. Um, I mean, why do we want to talk about sin? I mean, isn't there more positive things to address? Well, just hold on. I, I think it's absolutely critical for us to talk about it uh, for a host of reasons. But, but one is the reality that all of us sin. Every day, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, but we all sin Every day, and pay attention to this, the consequences of our sin are devastating. They really are. 
they wreak havoc in our lives. So anything we can do to better understand this thing called sin and how to deal with it and understand the temptation around it and how to avoid it, anything we can do that will help us has to be a win. So this morning we're going to look at Genesis 3 and see if we can come to a deeper understanding of sin. As one pastor said, sin will take you where you don't want to go. It will keep you there longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you're willing to pay. And that's true. So with that in mind, uh, let's... uh, we're going to go to Genesis 3, but, but I think we need to set up what's happening here. And we can do that by looking in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It's kind of the setup for what happens in chapter 3. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. You have to ask yourself, what's really going on here? I mean, God takes uh, this couple, Adam, and even puts them in paradise and basically says, you know, you can, can eat from any of the trees in the garden except one. You can enjoy the environment. You can play. You can enjoy the river. I mean, just have at it. It's awesome. But then all of a sudden he says, but this one tree... Don't eat of it. And you wonder, God, are you trying to set them up? What is going on? I think it's important for us to understand what God is doing is he's working into the fabric of creation something absolutely essential, and that's freedom of choice. In other words, he's presenting Adam and Eve with an option that says you can Obey me, keep my command, or disobey me. It's really not about the tree. It's really about doing what I say. Now, freedom of choice is absolutely essential to any relationship. Uh, Freedom of choice is critical it is what, what gives uh, humans dignity and, and value because if there's no freedom of choice, then we're simply robots or automatons or, 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 or machines. Freedom of choice is what gives us responsibility and gives us notion of accountability. Freedom of choice is what gives us significance and meaning in life because with freedom of choice, our decisions matter. Freedom of choice creates the potential for trust and loyalty and allegiance and true obedience. Freedom of choice is absolutely essential for love. And if there's no freedom of choice, you don't have any of those. And some people say, no, Nick, I know it looks like we have freedom of choice, but, but look, God is sovereign. He's in control. And if God is sovereign and in control, then freedom of choice really simply has to be an illusion. Everything has to be determined if God ultimately is in charge of all the world. And I understand that tension, but I have come to the conclusion 
that I radically disagree with that. Freedom of choice is not an illusion. It's something that God from the beginning worked into the fabric. I don't understand how it all works, but I know it's real. That's your and my everyday experience, and it seems to be validated here in Scripture. One of the quotes that has really impacted my life over the last few years comes from Richard Rohrer. It's actually bad English, but it just resonates with me so much. He says that God is the great allower. Allower is not a word, but you get the point. God is the great allower. He allows us to choose. Now, as you begin to think of that, you, 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 you have to understand that freedom of choice comes with tremendous risk, right? Because if freedom of choice is, is real, then, then we, people, humans, can choose wrongly. We can choose to go against God. And, and in that scenario, evil becomes a very real thing. And when I choose wrongly, I have to bear the consequences and responsibility. And here's the part that, that becomes really difficultly difficult. Not only do I bear the consequences for my sin, but so do other people. There's this ripple effect. And if I'm free to choose and the people around me are free to choose and all of us choose badly, then I have to experience not only my own consequences, but the consequences of their choices. And suddenly, life becomes very precarious. Life becomes very dangerous. Suddenly there's no guarantees. Suddenly it doesn't feel all that safe. Suddenly I may experience great evil or great suffering. But you know what? That seems to resonate with what we experience, isn't it? We're not exempt from the consequences of other people's horrific choices. And God allows great evil, Great suffering, great heresy, great deception. That's life. And it does feel scary. And it does feel precarious. And it doesn't always feel very safe. You say, well, wait a second, Nick. I thought, you know, we believe that God is sovereign. It's just a fancy word for saying that he's the one who's really ultimately in control. Well, if God is sovereign, then how in the world can we have freedom of choice? If God is in control, how can he allow all this evil? If God is really in control, how can you put his control, his sovereignty together with our ability to choose? And I understand that that's a tension and a bit of a mystery. But, but, but let me share with you the best way I, I've been able to think about that. If you've heard me preach for a while, you've heard this illustration before. But, but it, it uh, has become part of my understanding of the nature of the world. So let me give it to you again. I think that uh, life is like a chess game. On one side is God and he's playing and he's the grand master. On the other side is us, all of humanity. Now we are, are free to move our pieces anywhere we want. However we want to play the game, God allows that. 
But, but when you play a grandmaster, you know what happens? They see ahead. They know what all the potential moves are that you might make. And they have plans and contingencies for all those moves, all the things you might do. And if they're really a great grandmaster, not only do they know what you're going to do, but they're going to use the very thing you did for their purposes to accomplish their end. And here's the one thing that's certain when you play a grandmaster, they win. The game is theirs. I think that's life. I think God is sovereign and in control. And the game is his. But I also think we are free. And that's the mystery of God's redemption and grace. That he can even take our horrific choices and the horrific choices of those around us and ultimately use them for his purposes and his plan and our good. That's the game. Well, that's the setup. They're in the garden. They can eat of any tree, but not the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's see what happens, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And when we come to this, we know the rest of the story, right? So we read into it, oh, the serpent, that's, that's the devil, that's Lucifer, that's Satan, that's the opposer, that's the evil one, that's the prince of, we, we know all that because we know the rest of the story. Eve does not know that, Right? And when the serpent shows up, he doesn't tell her. We know who the serpent is. The best understanding we have is that the serpent is an angelic supernatural being who rebelled against God and led a third of the angelic host in rebellion against him. And he's the leader of that rebellion. We know that. And he's God's adversary and he's the Satan, the, the opposer, the one who works against God, God's people, and is an advocate for sin. And he shows up here with an agenda. He wants Adam and Eve to join the rebellion. But notice a couple things. He doesn't, he doesn't, doesn't reveal who he is nor what he's about. He shows up in disguise, both in terms of his person and in terms of his purpose. He doesn't come on the scene and say, hey, Eve, I'm your enemy. I'm the evil one. I really want you to join the rebellion. (laughs) No. He shows up as this animal who's very intriguing. You know why? He can talk. And no other animal in the garden can talk. So Eve's really enthralled. And he doesn't let on that he's working against her. In fact, he presents himself as if he's working for her. It's always fascinating to me how we think uh, the evil one works in life. Uh, um, And how he's portrayed in the media... 
when Satan is portrayed in the media, it's always, he's always portrayed as something demonic, as something explicit, as something obvious. Um, there's a new show out called Evil. Have any of you seen it? Um, I've tried to watch it a couple times, but every time I start, Barb tells me to turn it off. She doesn't, she doesn't like it. But in that show, I think it's intriguing to people because their evil kind of comes becomes obvious and explicit and weird and strange and demonic. And that's why, that's why it's such an interesting show. But the reality is when Satan shows up, that's not he shows up how he shows up. He, he shows up in just the normal course of life. And his goal is to do his work and to stay hidden. I mean, if you made a show about how Satan really works, no one would watch it because it'd be pretty boring. Now, let me ask you. How many of you know where Satan, the evil one, has been at work in your life this last year? Some of you. I think when we're asked that question, most of us think, well, I haven't been to an exorcism. I haven't seen any demonic activity. Nothing weird has happened. Nothing's levitated in my house. You know, strange things haven't gone bump in the night. He must not, you know, be very active at all. Folks, don't be naive. His goal is to do his work and to stay hidden. Right? In the New Testament, we're told that Satan prowls around looking for those who he can devour. If you think God, Satan has not been active in your life and your decisions, trying to lead you astray, trying to oppose God, work against his work and work against you, you're being naive. The, the supernatural world is far more complicated and real and, and, and present than, than we probably have any understanding of. And Satan is hidden, and that's exactly how he wants it to be. When he does show up, though, notice how he works. The first thing he does is he sows confusion about what's right and wrong. Look, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. We can go to the next verse. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Suddenly she's, she's got it wrong for one thing, and there's no place where he says you can't touch the fruit. And the question is, what really is God's expectation? What really is right and wrong? You see that in our culture, Right? Uh, Satan's been doing his work. In our culture, everything's relative. There's no right and wrong. There's no absolute truth. What is true for you? Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if it's not true for me. Everybody is there. They're autonomous. They get to decide what's right and what's wrong. There's no explicit standard. Sounds like Satan to me. He's been at work. And here's the thing. The more confused we are on what God expects, then it's easiest easier for us to disobey. So not only does he sow confusion about what's right and wrong, but, but then there's confusion about God's goodness. Look at what, uh, how he responds. Uh, next. Thanks. Um, he says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's, what's going on? Satan is saying, God doesn't really have your best interests in mind. 
He really doesn't care about you. I mean, a good God wouldn't tell you you can't do things. A good God wouldn't keep you from being all you can be. A good God wouldn't uh, want to limit your pleasure or your enjoyment or the fulfillment of your life. A good God wouldn't give you no's. You know, what's really going on here is he's not that interested in you. He's interested in himself. He knows that if you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and then you'll be like him. That's what's really going on. He's just interested in himself. Boy, once we're confused about what is right and wrong, and once we're confused about the goodness of God, it becomes far easier to disobey. Look at what happens. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now there's a pattern of sin or the process of sin here that you see repeated again and again and again in all of scripture and you see it in our lives. First, you look, the woman saw, then you desire, she saw it was pleasing and desirable, and then you act. You look, you desire, you act. That's always the process of sin in our lives. She sees, looks good, she desires it, she eats, and then she gets Adam to eat as well. What's really going on here? I mean, bottom line, what is the sin that Adam and Eve, what's the essence of the sin? And why did they do it? It really isn't all about eating a particular fruit. What it's really about is their decision to disobey God. One of the things we learn from this passage is that sin is always willful disobedience. It's always saying, I'm going to do what I want rather than what God wants. It's willful disobedience. And you know what happens is a lot of the times we we don't want to see sin as willful disobedience. We want to see sin as a mistake. You know, it wasn't intentional. I I, I just made a mistake. I, I like what Andy Stanley writes about this. Andy Stanley says, I didn't uh, sin. I didn't rebel. We want to say I just made a mistake. The dictionary calls a mistake an error in action or poor reasoning. So when it happens, we can say, oh, my bad, my mistake. But there's a difference between a sin and a mistake. If everything is dumbed down to a mistake, then that makes me a mistaker. If you're just a mistaker, you just have to do better. If I'm a sinner, that isn't going to be enough. I know that what I did was intentional. It wasn't a mistake. It was choice. It it, it was the tree. Now, there's actually something going on here, even deeper. Willful disobedience oftentimes is simply the symptom of something much deeper in our heart. And as long as we don't get to that deeper, in our, deeper issue in our heart, what we end up doing is we, we become kind of sin managers. 
We, we try to deal with sin in our life and we, we try to simply deal with the behaviors. So we make up lists of do's and don'ts and we try to control our environment and we try to look at the triggers and those are all good things to do. But honestly, if that's all we do, all we're doing is managing the symptom of sin, managing the behavior that manifests, we're not getting to the root of the issue. You see, this is where the notion of the tree of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil comes in. Knowledge is really experience. And when they eat of the fruit, what they're saying to God is, we want to experience what good and evil is. We want to be the ones who determine what's right and wrong. God, we don't want that decision to be yours. We want that decision to be ours. In other words, when they eat of the tree, what they're really saying to God is, we want to be God. And they're displacing him from his rightful place. And when you displace God from his rightful place, we have a word for that. We call that idolatry. And you see, the truth of the matter is, at the root of every sin we commit, when we'll drill down into our heart, we'll discover that there's some sort of of idolatry, some sort of displacing God in our lives that leads to our sin. But if we never take a moment to think and get to that issue, then there'll never be any transformation. Let me give you an example. Say you struggle with gossip. You like to talk bad about other people. And you know it's wrong, so you decide you're going to kind of to deal with that sin in your life. So you go into sin management mode. You, you, you shut up, right? <laughs> um, you manage the people around who, who kind of push you to gossip. You try to deal with the triggers and, you know, you try to eliminate the behavior. But as long as you stay on that level, all you're doing is manage the sin and the symptom. You're never getting to the issue of the heart. At some point, you have to ask yourself, why do I gossip? Why do you gossip? Why do I gossip? Why do we talk bad about other people? Because when we talk about other people in a negative way, it makes us feel good. And when we share that with some other people, we're making somebody else look bad, we're making ourselves look good, and what really is going on is what we care about most at that moment is what that other person thinks about us. And when we care so much about what that other person thinks about us that it, it, it causes us to sin, to gossip, at that very moment, that other person and what they want has replaced the role of God in our lives because they care about what they think. Now, if we sit back, we say, wait a second. I, you know, to be honest, I don't really care about what they think. I know that's the momentary feel I have, but what I really care about is what he thinks. Quite honestly, what they think is irrelevant. Now, if I can come to that understanding and realize that, then in the moment, I, I'm not thinking about what will make me feel good or what will make them think highly of me or make them like me. All I'm thinking about is what he desires because what he thinks about me is most important. Now, when I get there, that brings about transformation in my heart that works out in terms of my behavior. So let me ask you a question. When you think about the sins that you wrestle with, if you get beyond sin management, what are the issues of idolatry that are going on in your heart? Because that's where you want to wrestle. So Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit. 
It looks like a simple thing. But as you read through the chapter, you begin to discover that it has a profound impact. In fact, everything is changed because they eat the fruit. Everything is broken. We don't have time to work through all the rest of the consequences in the chapter, but that's what gets delineated for me. I try to put them together uh, uh, just so we can get a sense. The very first thing you see is their sin fractures their relationship with God. It becomes broken, right? He's in the garden, and what do they do? They hide. When, When we read that text, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool breeze of the evening. I don't think that's the best way that verse should be translated. I, I, I think it should be translated, they heard the roar of the Lord moving through the wind of the storm. And you understand, oh, that's a description of judgment. God has come into the garden and he's roaring through and he's ticked because of his sin, their sin. And, and what do they do? They hide. And you would too, because God's not happy. The relationship is broken. And second, there's a ruptured relationship with each other and ourselves. What what do they do when they sin? They they get fig leaves and they hide. Why is that? Because suddenly they they feel shame and, and they see themselves as bad. So they want to hide their badness from each other. And their relationship, their perception is tainted. They've lost their innocence. And it breaks the relationship they have with each other. God shows up and asks Adam, did you eat of the tree? And what does Adam say? Well, she made me do it. And God asks Eve, did you eat of the tree? And what does she say? Well, the devil made me do it. And suddenly the whole fabric of the relationship is twisted and broken. And then there's actually a tear in the social fabric of life as you go through the consequences for the the serpent and the woman and the man. You begin to understand every part of life is messed up. The woman will have, the text actually says she'll have more severe pain in childbirth. There was pain before, but now it's more severe. And the word for pain is actually anxiety. Now women will be anxious about this this role of motherhood and having kids. And it messes with the marriage relationship. Suddenly her desire is for her husband, this desire to control, and he rules. And suddenly the way they get along, there's this struggle for power and control, and the fabric of the marriage itself is messed up. And then take work, right? The ground is cursed and now man has to struggle against weeds and thorns and thistles and things don't work the way they did and there's futility. Work becomes meaningless and insignificant. And in fact, the whole creation is broken. I think we we forget this because... You know, we're individualists as Americans. We like to understand that I sin and the consequences of sin simply affect me. But we miss the fact that we live in a network of relationships with other people in the creation itself. And when we sin, it's all impacted. And the creation itself fell, became broken when Adam and Eve sinned. Everything is broken. And then at the end... Adam is told, you are dust, and to dust you will return. 
and we begin to see that, that uh, the reign of death has become, has started. Everyone will die, and death dominates over life. Everything is broken. When I was small, one Christmas, my parents bought me a, a model airplane. I think it was a biplane, a plastic model airplane. And they unwrapped it. I was really excited, and they uh, uh, threw in a tube of glue so I could put it together. And everybody was done opening their presents, and I wanted to put my model together, so I ripped off the packaging, and I opened the tube of glue, took the lid off at least, and I began to squeeze it, and the glue would not come out. Because if you've ever messed with that glue, you know you have to put a hole in the top of the nozzle for the glue to come out. And I told my mom, hey, mom, the glue won't come out. And she said to me, Nick, wait, and I will help you. (laughs) Well, I figure I could handle this, that the problem was I just had to squeeze harder and the glue would come out. And it turns out I was right. If you squeeze hard enough, the glue comes out all at once, and it exploded everywhere, on the carpet, on the wall, on the model, on my hands, on my clothes. Now, I was smart enough to know that in a few moments, the reign of death would come. (laughs) So I did what every little kid does. I tried to clean up the mess And then I got wrapping paper and I laid it over the carpet, (laughs) you know, just to cover my sin. And then, with gluey hands, I went up to my room and hid. That's the fall. That's the fall. We see, we desire, we act. We do what we want to do. It's willful disobedience. And as a result, everything is broken. All of it. Okay, Nick, wait. You said that the six words were everything is broken, but there's hope. I'm not feeling much hope right now. (laughs) Well, it's there. Let's, Let's go back to the text for a moment. Verse 20 says this. And this is a strange verse. All out of the blue, it tells us that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. And you go, why is that there? I mean, he was naming the animals and stuff before. It's the author's way of giving us a glimpse of hope. During the reign of death, Eve now is the mother of all the living. Things will not always be this way. There's a hint of hope, a glimmer of grace. In the next verse, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, some people want to say, well, that, that hints at animal sacrifice that was made to pay for their sin. I think that's probably reading too much into the text. But what you can say is this is a hint of grace. God is doing something to, to remedy the consequences of their bad decision. He's covering them. He's concerned, he's acting, and he's acting to redeem. Just a hint of what's to come. And then it gets even more interesting. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, uh, God is concerned that if in his fallen state, Adam reaches and touches the tree of life and eats from it, now he'll live forever in that fallen condition. God does not want to do that, want, does not want that to happen. So what's he do? So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden, a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, now some people see this banishment as punishment, but I don't think it's punishment at all. I think it's protection. God says, that's not my plan for you. I don't want you to live forever out of sight of my presence. So I'm not even going to allow that to be a possibility. So I'm going to place these cherubim as a way to protect the way back into the garden and back into my presence. Do you know what cherubim are? Cherubim in the scriptures are supernatural beings, angelic beings, they, they have wings, and, and they're most often around the throne of God. They're the ones who, in a sense, guard access to his presence. That's what cherubim are. So you have two cherubim uh, protecting the entrance back into the garden, and there's this sword. So, so we can't go back into the garden in the presence of the Lord. It's interesting. If you go to Exodus 26... There, uh, um, the author, God, is giving instructions about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent. It eventually became a building at the temple. And the tabernacle and the temple represented the presence of God amidst the people. And it was this building or this tent with an outer court. And then on the inner court, there were two places, one called the Holy of Holies and the other called the holy place. The holy place is where the priests could go and do their sacrifices and do all the things that priests did. But the holy of holies, nobody could go in there because that's where the presence of God was. And you had the Ark of the Covenant. Over the Ark of the Covenant were the two cherubim and the mercy seat. And no one could go in there except the high priest once a year. Access was restricted. What's fascinating, in Exodus 26... We are told that they put a curtain between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. This massive curtain. And in Jesus' day, it was in the temple. It was this huge, thick curtain that was impenetrable. Then in Exodus 26, we're told that a skilled craftsman was supposed to embroider two cherubim on the curtain. Right, because they're protecting the entrance to the Holy of Holies. You can picture it in your mind, the two cherubim and the sword, uh, protecting God's presence. If you go to the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every one of them talk about this. At the very moment Jesus died, do you know what happened to that curtain that was in the temple that separated the holy of holies from the holy place that had two cherubim on it it was ripped in half all the way through why because the death of Jesus 
open the way back into the garden and the presence of God and the cherubim were moved away. You see, there is hope. And ultimately, that hope is found in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And if we follow him, we can get back to the garden. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to wrestle well with sin in our life and deeply so our wrestling transforms us and you transform us by changing our heart so that we always keep you first because we know that sin has this devastating effect on us and all those around us. So help us understand how to wrestle against it well. But most of all, Lord, I pray this morning that we would find our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ because he is the only way for us to get back to you in the garden and live in your presence again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.